Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may be soon kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5 is our text. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please, as we turn to our psalm of preparation. Chapters 12 and 13 present us with the evil triad of enemies facing the first century church and the church of every age. The dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast, the great red dragon, Satan, uh, and his two agents, the demonized political and religious powers of the earth uh, that he uses as his instruments 
to attack the church and deceive the ungodly. In John's time, uh, the Roman Empire and the false prophets of Judaism, uh, those uh, that ungodly state and uh, ungodly religion succeeds John's time in the church of all ages. So John's prophecy is very relevant to us today. And that prophecy is made clear that these enemies are relentless and that the conflict that we experience against them requires faithfulness unto death. The question that naturally arises is whether the church will survive such an all-out attack. The closing section of the fourth major division of this prophecy of Revelation addresses the concerns and fears of believing readers in the church of Jesus Christ, providing reasons for the church's victory over all her enemies. This trio of hostile forces is formidable and it may even at times to us seem invincible, at least from a human point of view. But the revelation of the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast is followed immediately by visions of victory and judgment in the heavens. The purpose of chapter 14's visions and the voices from heaven is to show us that the powers of the heavens are mightier than Satan and his demonized agents. We're given two uh, perspectives, if you will, here. Uh, There's an initial scene in verse 1, and then uh, an initial perspective, and then there's a shift of scene, a a shift of perspective in the rest of our text in verses 2 through 5. And here we see in the first place the Lamb and His army standing on Mount Zion, and secondly, the Lamb's army singing a new song. The Lamb and His army standing on Mount Zion, quite significant and the Lamb's army singing a new song also in light of, especially of Old Testament revelation, quite significant to us today. So in the first place, this revelation to John shows John and and shows us the Lamb and his holy army standing on Mount Zion. This first vision uh, in chapter 14 then takes us back to Psalm 2. Chapters 12 and 13 have shown John and us the heathen raging against the Lord and his anointed, Jesus Christ. 
And now Jehovah says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 2, verse 6. Guarantee that the nations will submit to Christ's all-embracing rule. Revelation uh, is a book of victory. The entire Bible and the eschatology or uh, the doctrine of the last things that it presents is an eschatology of victory for Christ and his church. And that's what we have here in the picture of God's anointed standing on Mount Zion, his holy mountain. In opposition to the dragon, the sea beast and the land beast, the lamb is standing on Mount Zion, already enthroned, king of kings and lord of lords, the ruler of the nations, the governor of the nations of the earth. The New Testament clearly identifies the the coronation and the enthronement of Messiah spoken of uh, in Psalm uh, Psalm 2 with uh, his invincible rule and uh, as God's son and with the resurrection and ascension of of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that, for example, uh, in Revelation 12, verse 5. Uh, the dragon is, is, is raging against the woman and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. A clear reference to uh, Psalm 2, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Acts chapter 13 uh, as well. Uh, this is... Uh, This is in Paul's sermon uh, on his first missionary journey. He says, verse 33, Acts uh, 13, verse 33, God has fulfilled his promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This is the one that we're being presented with here, of the Lamb of God, as he stands on Mount Zion as king. So John sees the lion lamb king on Mount Zion. Remember the the vision of chapter 5, where the prophet sees a scroll with seven seals in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne, and the immediate question came from the angel, who is worthy to open the scroll or to look into? And because of that, John began to weep. Uncontrollably, 
And one of the 24 elders spoke to John in this vision. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. Revelation 5, verse 5. That image of chapter 5 and verse 5 5 is of a Davidic king, a king that would succeed David, uh, an everlasting king uh, who would come from the line of Judah. Yet in what follows, remember, there in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John doesn't see a king. He sees a lamb standing as if slain. And here on Mount Zion, in Revelation 14 and verse 1, we see the lamb standing, the one who was slain for the sins of his people. Slain, but standing. The imagery conveys the point that Christ's death and resurrection are the means to his glorious reign as messianic king. The lamb standing on Mount Zion is a symbol of his victory over all of his enemies. But the lamb isn't standing alone on Mount Zion. One of the wondrous truths that we've already seen in Revelation is that God's people reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus conveys this, remember, in the letter to Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I sat down with my father on his throne. The Lamb is therefore not alone on Mount Zion because His people share in His reign and in His victory. We are seated with the Lamb even now because the Lamb is reigning on Mount Zion even now. There God's people are with Him. There they are. And the vision to John conveys this to us in that the 144,000, here in verse 1, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel ordered for battle, we saw, chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, the believing remnant of Israel, the Lamb's army, are with Christ standing with him. We saw in, uh, in chapter 13, verses 16 to 17, that uh, the mark of the beast was the counterfeit of the divine sealing of God's people, the true Israel. And now in chapter 14 uh, and verse 1, John's vision reminds us of that original sealing back in chapter 7 
of Israel's believing remnant. It's a brand of God's ownership upon them. It's a brand that secures their protection from the coming wrath of God and the Lamb that will be poured out. As we saw there in chapter 7, so here as well, it's good for us to see that the 144,000 are regarded as members of the church. It's a specialized reference to the members of the church, but not only as a separate category of uh, ethnic Israel, the, the remnant from Israel. And that's clear by John's combination of previous imagery in Revelation. We're told in chapter 7 and verse 3 that the 144,000 are sealed on their foreheads, while in chapter 3 and verse 2, all of Christ's overcomers have his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So the 144,000 belong to the church the army of overcomers, and yet they're also a special group, the remnant church of the first generation of believing Jews in the first century, those who have come out of the Great Tribulation. The scene that we have in Revelation 14.1 sharply contrasts with the scene that we saw before. The beast's deluded followers are are branded with the beast's mark on forehead or hand. Chapter 13, verse 16. And that was associated with the name of the beast or the number of his name. Chapter 13 and verse 17. Just as the name of God and the Lamb are associated uh, with God's people here in chapter 14 and verse 1. Both of them symbolize God's ownership and control. Mind and hand. Thoughts and actions, remember. But the beast mark doesn't deserve to be called a seal. It's not a seal. It's a mark on the hand. It's a, remember, this is just a symbol, but nevertheless, uh, if we visualize, as John did in the vision, if we visualize uh, this mark on the forehead or on the hand, uh, not uh, the beast's mark, not on, the, not on God's people, but on the foreheads and hands of those who have not submitted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Seals, on the other hand, signify not only ownership, but also security. They signify protection, the protection of of God's people. But the beast's counterfeit mark brings those who bear it no protection whatsoever from God's wrath and the wrath of the Lamb. 
So in these back-to-back visions, John sees all humanity divided into two camps. Two kinds of people in the world. Those who have the mark of the beast and those who have the seal of God and of the Lamb. Either people bear the name of the Lamb and his Father, finding safety in his ownership, or people are claimed by the demonically controlled world system that opposes the Lord and his Christ. A system that this scene, this perspective, this image of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion shows us is destined to be shattered like pottery with the rod of iron in the hand of the Lord's anointed Jesus Christ. The Lamb and His army on Mount Zion. What a significant vision this is for John for all of God's people in the first century and for us today in the 21st century. Christ Jesus reigns as king. He is invincible. Hallelujah. Secondly, we have in our text the Lamb's army singing a new song. Now, we've seen a new song here in, in Revelation, prior in uh, the visions that God gave to John. The voice that John hears from heaven is like, uh, verse 2, like the sound of many waters and a loud thunder. Quite a contrast, overpowering in strength but sweetly melodic as these harps are, are strummed in, uh, in heaven. It's the unified voice of the Lamb's heavenly army choir accompanying their new songs, uh, their new song on harps. When they appear again, Revelation 15, 2, they'll be holding the harps of God. A new song accompanied by a harp. Uh, If uh, we've read our Old Testaments, we've seen this before. The Old Testament, uh, a a new song accompanied on a harp uh, was a tribute that God's people offered to the Lord when he came to their rescue. For example, Psalm 144, verses 9 and 10, I will sing... A new song to you, O God, on a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you, who gives salvation to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the evil sword. It's a new song, but there's a history to this new song. It's a secret song. Only those uh, who are God's redeemed people could learn this song. The purpose of the secrecy isn't to 
uh, veil God's glory, of course, but to symbolize this marvelous truth that only God's sinful, redeemed people are able to sing this new song. Only God's sinful, redeemed people are qualified by the experience of their salvation to extol him in a way that even the purest, highest angel of heaven cannot do. Jonathan Edwards said that angels are greater in power, but believers are greater in grace. And that's why we as believers can sing this new song. It's a remarkable thing uh, that God's redeemed alone are enabled by the saving work of Jesus Christ to offer him worship that pleases him, that honors him, that exalts him as it ought to be. This is the mystery of our salvation. It's that mystery that Peter spoke of there in his first epistle, chapter 1. And when he did so, he said that these are things, that is things that he has previously spoken of there in, in that first chapter of his first epistle concerning us and our salvation. Things into which angels long to look. The angels of heaven, as it were, crane their necks, looking with great anticipation at what God is doing in his redeemed saints. And once again, here in John's revelation, we, we see that this, the, the visions that he sees are deeply rooted in Old Testament redemptive history, down through biblical history. When Israel's divine warrior won the victory, his triumph was celebrated in song. And when the Lord led Israel out of slavery and drowned their Egyptian oppressors, Moses led in the song of celebration, I will sing to the Lord, for he has highly exalted the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Exodus 15.1 King David sang Psalm 18 to celebrate victory, as the psalm's title shows. David spoke these words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be saved. Now praise rather, and I'm saved from all my enemies. Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. And that, that whole psalm is a, is a, a, a victory celebration song. To the Lord, and he finishes that song. It's a long one. In verse 50, saying, He gives great deliverance 
to his king and shows loving kindness to David and his descendants forever. This is a victory celebration. This new song of Revelation 14, a victory celebration of the great Messiah's reign. These visions in Revelation 14 and 15 set the stage for what's coming. In chapter 16, for uh, the seven bowls containing the seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished, chapter 15 and verse 1. So the remember the, the woes of the seals, the seven seals and the, the seven trumpets are, are limited in their impact, limited in their scope. But when the bowls of God's wrath are poured out, they're all-inclusive. It's an all-inclusive destruction that devastates everything and everyone infected by the feudal rebellion of the dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast, the false prophet, chapter 15 and verse 16. It's interesting to note here that each of the previous cycles in Revelation, we're Uh, We're in the fourth cycle of visions in Revelation. Each of the previous cycles was introduced by a vision that gave us a glimpse of heaven and its king who now rules history. So now as we reach the cycle that consummates God's wrath against uh, the rebels of the earth, John sees two complementary visions of heaven. And there, the choir of the redeemed, whom the Lamb has led to victory, celebrate their triumphant champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. And as we'll see, chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. In the first vision, the Lamb's choir sings a new song, which they alone may learn. Verse 3, in the second song, quite interestingly, their song blends old and new victory songs. They sang the song of Moses, chapter 15, verse 3, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, John ends uh, this vision Uh, with a description of of what he sees in the Lamb's army. Uh, There are several things here uh, that John says about the vision that that God gave him, about the character of uh, the Lamb's army. Notice in the first place in verse 4, it's purity. It's the character of purity. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. This vision uh, isn't speaking literally of celibacy, 
call, by calling uh, these chaste men or virgins. We need to keep in mind the symbolic form here. Uh, as always in Revelation, that's the principle upon which we operate in uh, uh, the prophetic books, but especially the book of Revelation. We assume that something is symbolic unless it's clear that it's literal. And recognizing that symbolic form will keep us from inferring that only unmarried celibate males can be followers of the Lamb. Even though that's the way the vision portrays them. Remember the Mosaic Law had instructed uh, Israel's warriors to maintain uh, strict, rigorous, ceremonial purity when waging war against pagan enemies, Deuteronomy 23, verses 9 to 11. The ceremonial symbolized the spiritual. It was a, it was a spiritual preparation for battle. And here, the appearance of the whole church, the 144,000, yes, representing a certain element of uh, of the church, uh, the, the, the remnant redeemed out of the great tribulation in the first century, but nonetheless we've seen uh, representing the whole church. Here, uh, the, the whole church, male and female, single and unmarried, are symbolized under the image of an army of celibate soldiers. which portrays the single-minded loyalty of those who follow the Lamb. A loyalty that we owe to Jesus as the captain of our salvation. The same spiritual monogamy will, will be symbolized later when the whole church, male and female, married and single, appears as a virgin bride, adorned for her husband, chapter 19, verse 7, chapter 21, and verse 2. The antithesis, the direct opposite of Babylon, the shameless prostitute. And so here the church appears as the lamb, uh, as a pure army following the Lamb wherever he goes into holy war. Uh, the antithesis, the exact opposite of the beast's defiled army. Verse 4 goes on to say that the army has been purchased from the land. Again, uh, a, a reference to these 144,000, the of the elect remnant of Israel brought out from the great tribulation of the, the first century. It refers to them, but again, to the entire church. But refers to specifically this 144,000 as the first fruits. This term purchase recalls the earlier doxology to the Lamb in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 
whose blood purchased for God, remember, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to be a royal priesthood. The New Testament uses first fruits to describe the first generation church, Romans 16.5 and 1 Corinthians 16.15. It does so in a way to when it's describing their redemption. It's really interesting. The same word that we find translated here, first fruits is found in, in uh, such passages. But here, John sees not individual Christians as redeemed, but he sees the whole assembly of God's people in heaven as the first fruits of a much larger harvest, a foretaste of, uh, of, uh, of the full harvest that is to come. So, of course, uh, is imagery borrowed from uh, one of the great feasts of the Old uh, Testament, uh, the Feast of Weeks. Seven weeks after Passover, Israel was to bring uh, their offering of first fruits, the first fruits of their grain, to express thanks to the Lord for the wheat harvest that they were uh, about to gather. And we find this uh, feast spoken about in. uh, really, the entire, almost the entire Pentateuch in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In biblical imagery, uh, first fruit symbolizes a preliminary installment that guarantees the fullness of what's coming. Because Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15. His resurrection secures the future harvesting of his own from the grave. So here John sees believers who have held the faith fast until death as the first fruits, the first installment that guarantees the ingathering of all of God's people, all the people that God has secured to himself throughout the world. And then finally here, in verse 5, the the Lamb's army is described as having uh, no lie in their mouth. The Lamb's army, the soldiers in the Lamb's army are not liars. And furthermore, John says, they're blameless. Where blameless has moral and ceremonial overtones. It's used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe the absence of a physical defect or blemish that was required of sacrificial animals. For example, in Leviticus 1, chapter 1, or Leviticus 3, as those who only speak the truth Soldiers in the Lamb's army bear the image of the Lord's servant who was led like a lamb to slaughter, Isaiah 53, 9, even though no deceit was found in his mouth. It's Satan, the dragon, who's the liar. 
It's Satan, the dragon, who's the deceiver of the nations. It's Satan, the dragon, who accuses, falsely accuses, the brethren. It's Satan, who's the father of lies, John 8.44 says. God's people are characterized by truthfulness. That's why it ought to give us pause and it ought to worry our souls if we are habitual liars. Because as God makes clear in his word, remember especially that passage in Ephesians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul speaks of uh, the truthfulness with which God's people are to deal with one another. It ought to give us pause if we are habitually engaging in falsehood. This conflict between truth and falsehood is central to the book of Revelation. Conflict between truth and falsehood, between Christ and the faithful and true witness, chapter 3, verse 14, along with God's true prophets, the, the two witnesses of chapter 11, verse 14. Contrast between these true and faithful witnesses of the Lord and Satan, along with the land beast, chapter, 11, uh, chapter 13 and verse uh, 11. Remember, the land beast is the false prophet the false teachers of Judaism. In opposition to her enemies, the church carries and proclaims the truth. Why is truth so significant? Why is truth so important? Why is doctrine so important to the church? It's because the church is the witness bearer. It's God's witness bearer in this world. We carry the truth. We're his mouthpiece for the truth in this lost and dying world in which we live. So chapters 12 and 13 have painted a picture of persecution, a picture of the church suffering at the hands of the devil and his agents. Yet here in chapter 14, this counterpoint is presented in contrast. It's a magnificent picture of, of Christ ruling on Mount Zion, even in the midst of his enemies, and ruling in the midst of his people. According to this text, the fact that this rule has already begun means that in the midst of our suffering today, Christ is protecting his people spiritually. It's a repetitive, a repetitive message in the book of Revelation. And I don't mind being repetitive in terms of 
the message itself or the application of that message because God is repetitive. He wants us to get this. And the reason he repeats it so often, I think, is that rather than getting it, we forget it. When we find ourselves surrounded by troubles, or when we're in the midst of suffering in this life, when troubles confront us, when suffering, when persecution, when trials and affliction confront us, we forget who we are in Christ. We forget that we're standing in the midst of God's army, in the presence of the Lamb. We forget that we've been seated with the Lamb in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And instead of overcomers, we're defeatists because we haven't remembered that the Lamb and his fair army are standing on Mount Zion. That Christ is ruling in the midst of his enemies and present in the midst of his people to actively protect them from his and all of their enemies. We stumble in the path of perseverance of the faith. Remember that. Remember that. Uh, uh, remember what this vision to John has communicated in the, in the here is of Revelation 13.10. Here is. Uh, that formula in Revelation means this is what's important. And John says here in Revelation 13.10, this is what's important, the perseverance and the faith of the saints. When we stumble in the perseverance and the faith of the saints, we stumble because of forgetfulness. So we need to be those who call to remembrance the wondrous things that God has told us about our union with Christ. That everything that God has done for Christ, he has done for us. Everything that Christ has experienced, we experience as Christians. And that includes ruling and reigning from his heavenly throne. When we stumble, it, when, we, when we become forgetful in, in our Christian experience, we lose sight of that saving relationship that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever form your persecution or suffering takes, Christian, whatever you are experiencing in this life, whatever difficulty, whatever trouble, you must get this perspective. You must have this perspective of Christ reigning in heaven and you as those who belong to the army of the Lamb reigning with him, seated with him in the heavenly places 
with Christ Jesus in order that you might persevere in the faith of the saints. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are humbled by uh, this spectacular vision that you've given to John here in this 14th chapter of the revelation that you, O Christ, have given to your servant, the the prophet, the apostle, um, that we might benefit as uh, your people here in the 21st century. We ask, O God, we pray knowing our weakness and how often we stumble in the way of remembrance. We pray that you would help us to be those whose heads are lifted up even in discouragement and trial and persecution and suffering and temptation, the things that bog us down into the mires of this world. Help us, O God. Bring these things to mind. Don't leave us where we are. but raise us up to the heavenly places with remembrances of our union with Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, who stands on Mount Zion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.